scripture is printed in your bulletin, so if you have that, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. If you have uh, your scriptures, uh, your uh, physical Bible, you can open with me. We're looking at uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And this passage is what many scholars would call a majestic mountain peak, a mountain peak. It is the top of the theological truths that are in a book that is full of good theology. And as in the reform circles, we love that, right? We love good theology. But this, this passage today, yes, it is a lot of really good theology about who Jesus is and his humility. But at the same time, it is written with a purpose, with an aim in mind. And the purpose is to spur on the life of the believer towards humility. At the same time, while this is a a very, very good passage, many scholars would say that this is a a paragraph that is one of the most difficult to interpret in the entire New Testament. So to to, to do justice to the text, we really need to understand it in the light of the surrounding context. Every time I get up here, I'm going to preach that. We have to understand the context of where we are in the Bible. We can't pull things out and just apply them to uh, 21st century American life, right? Like, we can't do that. We have to understand where we are in the scriptures um, to understand uh, and, and apply it properly. So if we look back, leading in chapter 2, right before where we are uh, this morning, Paul is calling the Philippian church. He says this, Let each one of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He is calling the church to be of the same mind, with the same love. In verse 3, it says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So this is preceding our verse today, right? So what's the call to them in verses 1 through 4? The call is to love each other with humility, to think about each other more than you think about yourself. So in this passage this morning, he's moving from exhorting them to humility to say, look, Be humble, but now in verse 5 he says, look at your king and how humble he is. Many scholars would say that this is the most important section in the letter to the Philippians because this, it, it, it provides the reader with an explanation of the humility of Jesus. And it shows him uh, to be equal to God, to being in the same form of God that we're going to see this morning. But at the same time, There's a call, there's a push for the believer saying that truth is great and it affects your life today. It needs to affect your life because there is an exhortation here towards humility. He's saying, be humble here. Love each other well. Now look to Jesus and how he did it perfectly. So we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Let's read these verses together. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, what a beautiful picture 
of true love, of true humility that we see in Philippians chapter 2. And Father, we plead, we pray that you would be here. We know that we need your spirit to apply this word to our hearts, and we pray that you would do that, that you would allow this word to come into our minds and move to our hearts and out to our hands, that we may love others well as you have loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so as we begin getting into the text, I want you to start by doing this, okay? I want you to think about your decision-making process. When you make decisions in life, I want you to think, first, let's think about this. When you make big decisions in life, who is at the central position of your thought? Okay, a couple examples. When you're going to take a new job, who are you thinking about? When you buy a new house, when you maybe are going to make a big move, how your budget is going to be laid out each month. Often maybe we'll think about our family, our friends, the people that's going to affect right, these things, but often we'll think about ourselves in the central position. I want you to think about the little decisions in life, and these are more the, the funnier ones. How you'll react towards someone that cuts you off in traffic. How are you going to react? What clothes are you going to wear in the morning? What grocery store are you going to shop at? Here's what I'm trying to get at is this. If we think about our lives, in most arenas in our lives, and most decisions that we are making, we will think about ourselves in the very center of that decision, right? It's natural for us to do that. What is best for me? What decision is going to impact my life in the best way? Now, I know that's not often the case, right? Like, we can love our spouses well, we can love friends well, we can love our children well, thinking about them. But often, our default, when I'm going to make a decision, is going to be, what is best for me? So I want you to realize that, that if you're like me, that our lives are often centered around our own desires, our own needs. They're centered upon ourselves. But in our text today, as you see Jesus, this is the, how it flips, the text flips it on its head, right? He is the one that the world revolves around, and yet he lays his life down. In the text today, we get to see what true humility looks like. We get to see what an, an others-centered lifestyle looks like. So the, the, the thing that's going to be anchoring us in our text today is this. As we see our Savior Jesus himself humble himself, we are called to an others-first lifestyle. Let me say it again. As we see our Savior Jesus humble himself, we are called to an others-first lifestyle. So we're going to break. We're just going to walk straight through the text. We're going to break it in two different parts, okay? The first part is verses 5 through 8. It's Christ's humiliation. Secondly, we're going to look at Christ's exaltation in verses 9 through 11. So go ahead and let's look at the text together. Let's read. We're going to start in verse, actually we're going to start in verse 6. So let's read this together. It says this, who, though he was in the form of God, this is speaking of Jesus, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So from the beginning, we get to see that Christ came in the form of God. He was not simply uh, looking like God on the outside, but he was God in the flesh. He came bearing the very essence and nature of God. Now, it's hard for us to understand this. Hypostatic union is a theological term where he is 100% God, 100% man. The best illustration I had of this, how it breaks for us, is this. You have cran apple juice. You think it's 50% cranberry juice, 50% apple juice, right? 
There's no category in our mind for 100% apple juice, 100% cranberry juice into one juice. It doesn't make any sense, right? So there are a few things in the Bible that are going to be like this. They're mysteries that we're never going to understand. But Jesus came in the form of God, and he took on flesh. He was 100% man at the same time, 100% God. Now, moving on in the text, if we read it closely and we think about it, the text can bring some worries at first if we're not really careful. Because it says, Jesus didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But didn't we just say that he came in the form of God? So isn't it contradicting each other? Didn't we just say that he was equal with him? The text is not telling us actually that he's not equal with God. No, he did come in the form of God. That's why the passage lays that out first. He's saying this, that that Jesus did not regard being equal with God a thing to be used for his own advantage. So yes, he came in the form of God, but he's not using that, that position for his own good. In his nature is holiness, majesty, glory before all time, but at the same time, humility. So we get to see this here, that he is using that position for the good of others. There's actually some translations that translate it in that way, that it's still uh, good to the original language. The NIV translates this verse this way, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. So this is the point. That he came in the form of God, but he was not going to use his position for his own good, but for the good of his creation. He was coming to redeem his creation. Our creator set aside his advantageous position for the sake of others. So how does he do this? How does he, set, how does he use his position for the sake of others? Well, the text tells us. Look at verse, at verse 7. It says this. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. So there's three verbs. He emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, secondly and third, being born in the likeness of man. I want you to see that in the original language, all three of these verbs are actually linking back to verse 6. That he's, uh, it's explaining that he is existing in the form of God, that, that, but these things that he is doing are actually from his character as God, that his pre-existing nature is coming out. It is showing he is God when he does these things. Now, there's some debate uh, on Christ emptying himself, right? In uh, many liberal scholars in the 20th century, let me explain that term too. When I say liberal or conservative scholars, I'm not talking anything having to do with politics. It has to do with... Um, scholarship as a whole when it pertains to the Bible and liberal scholarship, they won't believe in inerrancy of the scriptures. So they'll say, well, I'm going to pick and choose what is true about the Bible. They will uh, doubt um, authorship. So they'll say, oh, well, Philippians says that Paul wrote it, but there's lots of disproving that. Paul didn't write that. We had to study a lot of this in seminary. All I'm trying to say is the facts check out. That the inerrancy is true. And, and, and when we look at the Bible for what it is, it all lines up together. So by, by, by saying he emptied himself, many of the liberal side will say that, well, he emptied himself of his deity. He emptied himself. He's no longer God because he emptied himself. He's not God anymore. He's now just a man. But 
all uh, current scholarship actually shows that this verb that he uses, to empty, four out of the five times in the New Testament and across Koine Greek in the time is actually used in a metaphorical way. That's how the language was used. He didn't actually empty himself of his deity. No, he emptied himself by doing these two things. He's saying, I'm going to empty myself by the next two verbs. First, I empty myself by taking on the form of a servant. Secondly, I empty myself by being born in the likeness of man. So essentially, he emptied himself by taking upon himself these new positions as a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Going on in verse 8, it says this, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So if you've been in the church in a while, you know this kind of truth, right? That's not new news to you. But this shows us the extent to which he was willing to humble himself. Think about your own life. How many people will you be willing to die for? And I would say, many of us would say, oh, of course I would die for my mom and my kids and my spouse and my friend. But think about your enemy, the one who spits in your face. That's what Christ did. He died for you and me. For the sake of his people, he died. So I read an illustration that I think for us that's heard, that have heard these truths over and over and over again, illustrations are what like hammers us on the head, right? Because we need something to bring it back to us. So there's a story from this book called An Angel's Point of View. And essentially it, what I'm going to read you is an imaginary conversation between two angels. There's like a, a very mature angel and he's showing this baby angel the galaxy and, and, and the beauty and the splendor that is there. And this is how the story goes. After they had been um, looking at the splendor and the glories of the universe for a little while, the little angel was beginning to be tired and a little bored. He had been shown whirling galaxies and blazing suns, infinite distances in the deathly cold of interstellar space. In his mind, there seemed to be an, there's an awful lot of it. Finally, he showed the galaxy, which our planetary system is but a small part And as the two of them drew near to the star, which we call our sun, and to its circling planets, the senior angel pointed to a small and rather insignificant sphere turning very slowly on its axis. It looked as dull and as dirty as a tennis ball to the little angel whose mind was filled with the size and the glory of what he had seen. Senior angel said this, I want you to watch that one particularly pointing to it. The little angel responded, Well, it looks very small and rather dirty to me. What's special about that one? The senior angel solemnly replied, That is the visited planet. Visited? Said the little one. You you don't mean visited by... Indeed I do. That ball, which I have no doubt looks to you small and insignificant and not perhaps overly clean, has been visited by our young prince of glory. And at these words he bowed his head reverently. Often when I hear that Jesus came in the form of God and in the likeness of man, I don't have that. I don't have that thought. Do we marvel at the beauty of what Jesus has done? 
It's easy for us to see these truths, to know these truths, to proclaim them with our lips, but do they affect our lives? Do they change how we live after we leave on Sunday morning? Why is this passage here? Remember, is it here to show us truths about Jesus? Yeah, we can pull so much out of this text, and so much good theology has been taken from this specific passage, but at the same time, its aim, its primary goal is to motivate believers to an other-centered life. To think of others before yourself. Because think about it. Isn't that what Jesus did for you and for me? He used his position. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Meaning he didn't use it for his own advantage. He used it for you and for me. I want you to think about how the world would change if we were all others-centered, right, as Christians. Putting others first is both a sign of the gospel, that it is well among us, and it is a necessity for the health of the church. So what what I'm trying to say is, being others-centered, having an others-first mentality is crucial for the impact of the church to a community. I want us to think about life as a whole, right? An others-first mentality, it encapsulates the role of a good husband that's seen in Ephesians chapter 5, that he counts his wife more significant than himself, that he looks out for her interests. Others first, it basically defines parenthood, right? Like this, it, it produces protective fathers, nurturing mothers who regard their children more important than themselves. In the church here at Christ the King, others first fosters community, health, forgiveness and strong leadership here in this place we are to regard we are called to regard one another more important than ourselves outside of that others first it defines a good neighbor a good co-worker a good friend so for you how are you with this how difficult is it for you to put others first in your lives and i'll be honest with you for me if we think about it It's easy for me to put others first in my life when it doesn't cost me anything. I can let the guy go in traffic if he cut me off. I lived in a big city for a while, and it it broke me of that. Like, if somebody cuts me off, it happened all the time in St. Louis, and now in El Paso there's fewer cars. It's like, okay, it's fine. It didn't cost me anything, right? But when the cost becomes something that's dear to my heart, it's taking away from my financial situation or my time or my reputation, that's when I... I'm going to say, oh no, I've got to put myself back at the center because I've got to protect myself. In, our, in, in, in Christ, we see the opposite of that. He was hung on a cross publicly. It cost him dearly. cost him his life to, li- to die for you and me so that we can live. So in our passage, we're called to that other's first mentality. Okay, we're going to move on to Christ's exaltation. This is verses 9 through 11. Let's read that together. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So right prior to this, in verse 8, we saw that Jesus went lower, lower, lower. He was at an all-time low at the end of verse 8. But here we see that he has catapulted up. He is at the highest he can be. That he went from being beaten, smitten by God, to highly exalted above all other. And the text uh, uses a, a, a phrase that is only used one time in the New Testament. And actually, uh, for kind of 
terms that are easier to understand, I feel like it could really be uh, explained as he is super exalted. Like super, the most exalted that you can get. That's what Jesus was in this passage. I want you to think about Matthew 23. These are Jesus' own words. He says this, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Is that not exactly what Jesus did? He came and served, and now he is exalted. We see that in the text. He had gone down, down, down unto death. I read uh, an illustration about this. It, 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 you can think about it like this. It's, it's like a, the gears of a catapult, right, that are being ratcheted down, 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 ever so tight. And then the last clear cl- uh, gear clicks, and there's this tension, right? It's like shaking, and then an explosion happens. It rockets up in the air, and that's exactly what happened to Jesus, that he is given the name above all names. But what is that name? We should ask that, right? That Jesus in the Bible, he's called lots of different uh, names. He's called Emmanuel, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, the Almighty, Ancient of Days, the Door, the Chief Shepherd, the Good Shepherd, the Word, the Light, the Lamb, the Bread of Life. could go on and on and on. He is given many names. So what is the name above all names? What is he given in this position? Is it a combination of all these? Verses 10 and 11 actually tell us the answer to the question. Let's look at it together. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The text tells us that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Greek word is kurios for that. I've told you before that when the uh, New Testament people of God were living before the New Testament was written, they had a Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint. Okay, so it's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. When Yahweh's name was translated from Hebrew into Greek, it is kurios. So when a New Testament writer says that Jesus Christ is kurios, he is putting him one with the Father. That is the name above all names. When I got married to Allison, they their family loves Rook, the game, right? And I had to learn how to play, and I learned that if you have this one card, no matter what is played, and you play that, you win. It is the trump card, right? That is the one, kind of depends on how you play the game. I've actually played with people that that's not true. That's how we play it, and that's the right, right way to play it. But anyway, there's one card in the deck that you have that card. There's, there's nothing else. Oh, you put it down, and everyone's like, all right, I lost. That's Yahweh's name. That is Curios. That is the trump card. He is given that name above all names. He is the covenant-keeping God of the Old Testament. He is one with God the Father. This, tells, uh, this text tells us that in verse 10, that there will be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now in the text, it tells us three things, that there will be beings in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Okay, in heaven is signifying angelic beings. At that day, all angelic beings will proclaim his glory. On earth is designating the earthly inhabitants, human beings specifically, and under the earth. It refers to dead human beings and fallen spirits. So what is he saying here? On that day, there will not be a knee that does not bow. There will not be a tongue that does not confess. So the call 
from the passage is to bow our knee to Jesus today. He's saying that one day, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Some knees will bow earlier than others. Some tongues will confess earlier than others. So think about this text. It's not only used as a theological treaty, right? Like there are beautiful theological truths here, but remember how the chapter started. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, before we close, I I, want to tell you this. This text is primarily written to believers, right? That's the main, when I'm speaking about the goal of living an other-centered life, that is to the, the call to a believer. Living a other-centered life will never make you a believer. It will make, never make you holy and right before God. This is something that comes afterwards. If you don't believe in Jesus now, this is the man you need. You need him first. You need His grace first. You need to turn to Him first. Once you're one with Jesus, then the outpouring of the Spirit comes and your life became, begins to change. And we see that we get, we get to participate in the work of Christ, right? In the work of Christ in the world. And the call today for believers is to have an other's first mentality. We see in the passage that Christ was humiliated and exalted. And we are called to be humble as He was humble. We're called to think of others before ourselves. Let us now bow our knee to Jesus and confess with our lips that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we need you each day. We see from the passage that we know that we are centered upon ourselves often that we think of ourselves more highly than we do of other people around us. But we see in your life, you came. You did not count your position as one to be used for your own advantage, but you laid your life down for us. And Father, we could never come to, into your presence, into your kingdom, without your son laying his life down. So Father, as we have heard these truths today. We pray that they would not stay in our heads, but they would move to our hearts and change the way we use our hands out in our daily lives. Father, we thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.